0: Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. This week on Indie Cider, there's definitely a A arms race, but the, there's, there's a solidarity in the indie scene that's global. That's um, that it, it transcends the geography. The us old guard, we, we tend to think that we all work together. We want to share and we want to help each other, inspire each other to succeed.
1: That's Sion Rosenblum of Three Sprockets, developer of Fight the Dragon, the subject of this week's IndieCider podcast. My name is Ken Gaggy, and I'm your host. Before we get to the interview, I have some exciting updates from the world of indie games. PAX East 2015 has announced which panels have made the cut for this year's conference, and two of my panels have been accepted, both of them, about indie games. If you are at PAX East in Boston, Massachusetts on Saturday, March 7th, you are invited to attend All the Feels, Empathy in Indie Game Narrative. I'll be moderating this panel about how indie games use narrative and empathy to address real-life issues. The senior writer of This War of Mine, previously featured on the IndieCider podcast, will be one of the panelists, as well as Logan Harrington of the game Gone, featured in the very first episode of IndieCider. We'll also have Anna McGill from Project Untold, Nicole Stark from Disparity Games, and Justin Americani from Vagabond Dog, known for the game Always Sometimes Monsters. That will be Saturday at 10 a.m., and Sunday at 1.30 p.m. will be another panel, this one called Reboot Our Roots, Bringing Our Favorite Genres Back to Life. This will be a panel about how developers are working with classic franchises and genres, such as point-and-click adventures, and specifically games like King's Quest and Gabriel Knight, to keep them alive nowadays. How do you work with a franchise that has so much history to it? How do you update the UI in a classic point-and-click adventure without breaking what made it fun in the first place? Representatives from Phoenix Online Studios, Infamous Quests, and Wadjet Eye Games will be on this panel. It's a great time to be an indie gamer, and PAX East is a great place to be an indie gamer. So I look forward to seeing you there. Stay tuned to YouTube channel GameBits and Twitter account GameBits for more updates as the date approaches, and also for more updates from the IndieCider podcast. Speaking of which, let's get to this week's game, which is Fight the Dragon, a community-created hack-and-slash RPG. This game is available for Steam, meaning Mac, Windows, and Linux, and it came out to Early Access in March of 2014, and just in December of 2014 finally hit version 1.0. This is a hack and slash RPG similar to Diablo, though I don't have a lot of experience with that particular genre or franchise. You create a character, such as a barbarian or a mage, male or female. All classes and options are available in both genders. And then you can go into various adventures either as a single player, local split-screen two-player, or online multiplayer up to four players. Each level takes about 10 to 15 minutes to play. And I played with the PlayStation 4 controller, so I found it very intuitive to just jam on that X button to swing my sword or push another button to cast the spell that is unique to my class. The graphics might be described as slightly blocky, but certainly nowhere near the Minecraft level of blockiness. There are some cool special effects when you cast various spells or when certain monsters appear. And the view is mostly sort of a three quarters top down, so there's a slight angle to it. And you can rotate the camera around, left and right, but not up and down. You can't adjust the height of the camera. In the early stages, the combat is a little bit simplistic. It's mostly just push the button to swing at your opponent until one of you dies. Whoever has the fewest hit points will likely die first. But then you start encountering more monsters and bigger monsters. And you also acquire various treasures and equipment that you can equip your character with or sell them in the hub world. In between levels, there is a hub where you can switch out your equipment, sell stuff you don't need, and redeem your dragon scrolls. This is one of the two main selling points of the game, in my opinion. As you complete various levels, you get a dragon scroll, which gives you three lives to attack a dragon that has one million hit points. Now, of course, you're never going to defeat him in a single try, especially early on in the game. He will just wipe the floor with you. But the damage that you exact upon that dragon is persistent and will carry over from attempt to attempt. So eventually you will wear him down and you will win. The other main selling point of this game is the level editor. The adventure construction kit allows you to create your own levels and make them available to other people to play. And there are even leaderboards on fightthedragon.com that shows who is making the most levels and whose levels are being played the most. Most of the game that you will encounter is in fact user generated content. This seems to be an approach that is working surprisingly well for Three Sprockets, the studio that makes this game. There are dozens if not hundreds of levels already available, with more being created all the time. And the editor was designed to be as easy to use with the keyboard and mouse as it is with a gamepad. So with all these unique features, there was a lot to talk to the developer about. But again, as I mentioned, I don't have a huge background in this particular kind of game. So I recruited my friend Lorian Green to share the interview with me. If you're a fan of my other podcast, Polygamer, then you're familiar with Lorian's work because she was recently featured in an hour-long interview regarding her work producing the documentary Going Cardboard, all about the resurgence in popularity of board games, and she's currently in development for another documentary called Shoot Again, about the resurgence of modern pinball. There will be a link to that interview in the show notes for this podcast, and you can also find her on Twitter at Lorian Green, that's L-O-R-I-E-N-G-R-E-E-N. My thanks to her for being a great co-host for this episode of IndieCider, and of course to developer Sion Rosenblum for taking the time to speak to us. Since there are more people in this interview, the episode runs a little bit longer. We hope that you enjoy the level of detail. Thanks for listening. We have summoned the dragon, and now we must face him head on. We are speaking with Mr. Sion Rosenblum, director and lead developer of Three Sprockets, developer of Fight the Dragon. Hello, sir.
0: Hello. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good.
1: So Laurie and I, Laurie is here, we've had a great time playing your game. Thank you for the Steam codes. We were playing it online with or against each other. Yep. Awesome. And uh one of the things that most struck us is the number of levels and designs that we have to choose from when we're deciding what level to play next. This game is very much focused on user-generated content. And just a quick look at fightthedragon.com reveals that that's very much uh a selling point that you're focusing on. That's quite a bit of faith that you showed in the player, though, relying on them to create so much content. How did you know that they would step forward and fill that gap?
0: Yeah, that was a, um, definitely a, a risk we took, uh, especially considering that you know, it doesn't take five minutes to put together an adventure. The, the last three games that we've made, like Fight the Dragon, Cubeman 2, and Cuben 1, the original Cubeman, all had level editors inside them. The Cubeman 1 level editor actually shipped really late um, I built it straight away so I could build my own levels, but the community was screaming for a level editor for a very long time before I agreed to release it. And then with Cubeman 2, we released a level editor straight away as part of the game. But um, you can whip up a, a level in five minutes inside Cubeman where with Fight the Dragon, you know we have people who devote you know, 30, 40 hours on one adventure just crafting the adventure. So we, we knew we were taking a risk relying on the whole game to revolve around user user-generated, user-generated content. But that wasn't actually a decision we made till after we hit our our pre-alpha release. So originally our, our plan was to obviously augment the community adventures with our own and we we had started working on content straight away. But after we launched our pre-alpha, I think within the first week we had about thirty-five or forty adventures from a very small group of community. There were obviously people that were really that were more excited in the creation side than the gameplay side. And within our first month, we had about 150 adventures, which were as many as we thought we'd get in a year. So it straight away became clear to us that getting the community involved in creating content wasn't going to be a problem. And so we decided very early on to stop making our own content and just focus on community content. That's cool.
1: You said that. It took you a while to agree to release a level editor for Cubeman. So you were there was some hesitation at first and now you've gone at 180 and fully embraced it. What was your original hesitation?
0: Well, firstly that the tool wasn't made for public consumption. So it was really rough around the edges and um, it was it was fine for me to use, but it, it needed a lot of work to polish it to make it, you know, um to take all the nuances out and make sure that people don't get corrupted data or or lose any of their creation time. But also, I was concerned about the level of quality that we'd get from the community. Um, I was expecting at that stage that, you know, a very small percentage of the the levels would have been very good and the rest would have just been a square block of nothing. And it turned out that it was probably the other way around, that we probably had about 10 or 15% of, well, I won't call it rubbish, but you know what I mean? Like, at, you know, levels that we could have done without. But the majority of the community were actually investing a lot of time and they ended up creating levels that were way more intricate than we ever planned for cubemint one or that i'd ever planned and i guess the same happened with cubemint two although we agreed to do a level editor straight away we still saw the community building designs that were way better than what we were building and what we were thinking the editor would be used for and once again the same thing happened with with Fire the dragon i mean we, we had community members working out how they could build logic systems with our switches and gates like to open and close gates, well before we had logic systems inside the game. Like it's, a lot of the uh, the tools and the the features we've put into the construction kit in Fire the Dragon now were totally inspired by what the community were making without those tools. Yeah, we're, we're, we're big fans of, of building easy-to-use content or easy-to-use creation tools so the community can build content, and, and that we obviously spent a lot of time in Fire the Dragon on that. Probably half of our development time was just on the creation kit.
1: And you've acknowledged your contributors through a variety of leaderboards on your website. What other sort of user engagement or incentives are you offering to get people creating?
0: Interestingly, we haven't had it, had it any. Uh, the, the creator leaderboards came quite late and they were there. I, I guess there are some people, that, some creators that use them uh, as incentives. You know, They want to be on the top of the leaderboard, but they were really just a, a side effect of all of the stats we were collecting collecting that we gave access to the creators for. So they could see um, in their dashboard, you know, how many people have played their adventures and how many people have died and how many enemies were killed, how much loot and XP. There's, there's quite a lot of data they get from, um, from the play data from the community. So there was just, the leaderboards were just a, why don't we just make a leaderboard type thing. Other than that, though, apart from some community members that have asked to be incentivized, to build content. We haven't done it, and most of the community don't want it. They um, they see the joy in just having the adventures played, which is a whole different issue we've got right now, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about later. Where we thought we'd have problems getting good adventures, where it actually turned out that we've got so much content and so much good content that we haven't had to worry about a reward system or anything else. Um, very early on, we were going to lock away um advanced slash or professional features inside the construction kit and only unlock them to creators who have done a really good job. And our community hated that idea. Like we thought they'd love it. We thought, you know, the fact that they could actually level up as a creator, not just as a character, would be a really cool thing. But it turned out that the community just wanted access to all those tools straight away. They didn't want to be hindered in their creativity. And so they actually asked us to remove that functionality, you know, remove the whole uh, leveling up as a creator idea. So, you know, we probably spent months in implementing that and we just ripped it out one weekend.
1: <laughs> well, the customer is always right. That's right. Yeah.
0: In this case, yes. They were definitely... It, it was. It made sense. Like, we were, we were... Definitely, we were hampering them.
2: So, in gamification terms, it sounds like creating the levels for them was um, intrinsically rewarding versus extrinsically. And that's just sort of like, you know, the holy grail, like, then you don't have to like build all those artificial like rewards in. So, that's awesome for you guys. So you had mentioned how, uh, you know, super detailed people were uh, as far as coming up with their different levels and stuff. Do you have any specific examples of, like, really cool things you've seen people build so far?
0: Yeah, well, okay. Well, apart from the fact that in terms of just pure creativity, the the way they've been combining, um, you know, the different paint swatches and stuff we give them to come up with, you know, like, well, for instance, we, we gave people the ability to do kind of like, you know, snow environments or ice and sand And the way they've been joining them together to build really like immersive visual environments is is blown us away. It's it's well beyond anything that we have tried creating ourselves. But like my example with the the switches and gates. So we we didn't have the ability to have like logic triggers and, and timed events inside the editor at the time. And people obviously wanted to not just make a dungeon to move around, but they wanted to have interactive objects where... They could set up, like a player could set up a chain of events like trapdoors opening and closing for puzzles. Mm-hmm. And this one guy built this system, which, which pretty much broke our game, but that was fine. Uh, mm-hmm. where we, he worked out that a gate takes about a second to open and about half a second to close. And so he worked out a way where he could hook the trapdoor, this series of trapdoors, like this big room, and all it was is was trapdoors on the floor. And they were all hooked into these gates. And using timing of opening and closing on the gates, he had about 100 gates off to the side. Um, and these switches, he could time the opening and closing of all these trap doors to make it so the player had to quickly move between them. And if he if wasn't quick enough, you know, they'd open on him and, and he'd fall through the ground and die. But they were, visually it looked like they were, there was like a, a set of logic to them, which there actually wasn't. It was just happened to be the timing. And like, wow. I, I don't know how long it took him to make it, And it would have been something very, very hard to do because our system wasn't set up to do it. And we were just blown away. Like we actually studied it and it it messed with our head. It looked like spaghetti inside the construction (laughs) kit, like the the way it was hooked up. But it it really um, galvanized us to want to add that type of functionality. And so we actually stopped what we were doing and started building all these new logic systems like events and triggers and actions. So people could do that exact thing, but do it much easier.
2: That is so cool. Yeah. So, like, say I'm an aspiring dungeon builder myself. Like, where would I go to get started? Like, to even you know, figure out the basics of this.
0: One of the interesting things. I mean, obviously, we're biased, so we we, we think we've got an awesome editor. But we, from day one of development, we wanted to make the whole game be fully compatible with a with a gamepad. Uh, this sounds off topic, but just, I'll, I'll get to get to the question. So we. We made sure that everything about the construction kit was really intuitive and it looks like a really easy, like oversimplified editor, although it's quite powerful, but it was designed to be really intuitive to understand. So one of the things we've been missing this whole time is really good documentation and help on the the editor. And every time we look at doing it, we see how well the community have embraced it without all the documentation and help that we never get around to doing it and we just keep adding more features for them. So... What we recommend to new creators is just jump in and start trying things. It's, we we think it's, it's really simple and easy to use. You're either sculpting your environment, which is kind of like playing with Lego, or you're, you're placing things on your environment like enemies or you're hooking, you know, you're putting props down or uh, hooking a door to a key. Everything's like really simplistic, um, to use. And although we, we did post some videos on YouTube about some of the basic features in there, we found most people within like five or ten minutes can, can have a basic dungeon up and running. You can also jump in and play test the adventure that you're making at any time inside the construction kit, and it puts you into full play mode. So you get enemies and you get loot drops and everything else, although you don't keep the loot. Um, so you can actually it's designed that you can build a little section, play test it, tweak it, build another add on bit, play test it, tweak it. It's a very iterative design, unlike some other editors where you have to actually work externally from the game. So you need to build something and then you need to export it and then import it into the game.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. We came up with something that we felt was really quick um, that you could iterate very quickly. And so far, it's been fantastic.
1: So the game focuses very much on user-generated content, but the game is named Fight the Dragon after a (laughs) one-million-hit-point giant lizard. Why name the game Fight the Dragon, not something like, I don't know, Dungeon Craft?
0: That's interesting. We actually had a lot of talking at the start trying to come up with a name and it's amazing how hard it is to find a name that has the word craft or build in it um and we didn't want to like we weren't a, a crafting game like as as you say something like dungeon craft to me i think that i'm going to be mining and crafting things inside the game uh we wanted to make sure that people understood that it was a a construction kit external like it's inside the game but it's external the, the, the game isn't the construction the game is the rpg and when we came up with our dragon idea, like we know our, our name's quite literal, and it seems to be literal to only a small part of the game, but it really resonated with us because, I don't know, we, we think we've got a really cool... We think our dragon mechanic's quite cool and quite unique uh, in that there's a, a boss that you can go and fight whenever you want and he's got persistent damage on it. Um, it hasn't really been done before, not, not the way we have. Mm-hmm. So we thought that was a really key selling point of our game. It turns out that... Our construction side is, is just as compelling and, and just as fun. And people actually get not just enjoyment out of having having built something, but enjoyment out of the building process, which is something that was unexpected for us. So by that stage, it was too late. You know, the game was named and it was already public or out there. So maybe in hindsight, a Dragon Craft or a uh, something else would have been a better name. But um, we, we think the name's done us well. We've had a few people who've told us they didn't like the name. Um, which we're okay with, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But when people hear that, you know, the team fight the dragon, they're immediately intrigued, you know, what does that mean?
2: Yeah, I do like how you um, have that kind of elder game thing built into it. It does really add... Interest to the game itself that you're working towards. That I mean, I've only got like 78 points in on that dragon. He likes to high five me to death, but <laughs> you know, it was it was it's pretty cool. Like uh, coming from an MMO background, where elder game is always a problem, it feels like you sort of solved the problem with that.
0: I mean, as you know, we're always in active development of the game. I, I like to see what else we can do with the dragon. You know, exploring other things down the line. It's uh, it's definitely an interesting concept for us. I mean, people, the community have already been asking for. You know different types of dragons to fight, we've got community members who have killed the dragon a hundred times. um We have a leaderboard and and people are quite active in in literally just sitting there for hours and hours on end, you know accumulating hundreds or thousands of dragon scrolls and then just going to kill the dragon nice. it's um i mean, i I personally don't have the patience myself to do that that many times, but some of our community do
2: well you know speaking of the kind of continued content development, I know that uh fight the dragon. Went into early access like back in March of 2014, so almost a year ago now. Um, yeah. And the feedback obviously has been good. But uh, are you officially out of early access at this point? And how's that part of the community going
0: for you? Yeah, we 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 officially launched December 4, our, our what we call version right. one, which was you know just it, literally was just another update for us. Mm-hmm. Um, although it was a fairly big update, it was just another planned update. But we. We were in early access for about nine months and it was a really fantastic experience for us. Um, we, we made a decision day one that we were going to do weekly updates and not, I'm not talking about like, here's a couple of bug fixes. Like our, if you, if you look on the Steam forums at our update schedule since the very first update we did, you know, it's been blood, sweat and tears for us to actually maintain our weekly updates, but we committed to it and we did it. But we've also been really open and transparent with the community the whole way through. Uh, probably a good third or forty percent of the features in the game right now are direct requests from the community or they've had complete control over how we would implement them we've um, you know done one eighty degree turns on a lot of our decisions during the whole early access process based on community feedback um, we've we really used the opportunity to engage our community which is which we felt is what early access was for, but it got to a point where not only were the weekly updates really killing us, but we, we had to put a line in the sand and say, you know, we're not saying we finished the game, but we need to say this is enough to launch. Like we, we had to see if the game had legs outside of early access, and so we worked towards our our December four launch, and it was great. Yeah, great feedback. If you look at our reviews, I think we've got five hundred and fifty odd reviews right now, and I think an eighty-eight or eighty-nine percent, you know, positive review rate, which is you know, pretty good. And our community, we, we, we told our community, I said, like, you know, this, this is our plan. Our plan is we're launching in December. You know, here are the things that we, we still want to do post 1.0. Understand it's not the end of our development, it's just a, another update. But we explained to them why we needed to launch, you know, both financially and, you know, it'd been 18 months by that stage. We needed to know if, if you know, once we remove the whole stigma of really access, because that's still quite ripe out there, you know. Will the game actually work? Will it stand on its own two feet? Will the community outside early access adopt it? And yeah, they have. It's, it's done really well. Well, oh, okay, so we're not retiring. It hasn't <laughs> done that well, so you know what I mean? But it's in terms game of game
2: designers don't retire.
0: Yeah, or you know what, I wouldn't mind. It's you know, Fire the <laughs> Dragons, my 20-second 20, 20 game as, a, wow. as an indie. So you know, I've been been around since, doing this full time since two thousand six. So um, maybe I'm close to wanting to retire, or at least slow down. Uh, No more weekly updates would be nice. But um, yeah, we were really happy with the launch. And uh, I think since then we've done about four or five big updates. And we've got lots more planned, including new platforms.
1: So you've obviously been around for a while, both as a gamer and as a game developer. When you were conceiving of Fight the Dragon, what were some of your inspirations? I mean, there are... Other fantasy RPGs like Diablo, there are multiplayer fantasy games like Lord of the Red Dragon, and there are game construction kits, more recently games like Little Big Planet, and going back into the 80s, if you want to talk about RPGs, TSR released Forgotten Realms Unlimited Adventures. So what were some of your inspirations that you were trying to amalgamate all these ideas?
0: Many of the ones that you mentioned, plus um you know, I, I used to. I didn't play a lot of like actual paper D and D when I was younger because none of my friends were interested in it. So I always found it hard to to find people to play with. Although I had all the the players and DM manuals and everything else on my shelf. You know, I used to buy every new edition that came out and and learn and read. um I used to play a lot of you know board games like talisman and, and Heroes Quest when I was younger, and um, definitely the TSR. Ah, uh, so, yeah, the, um, the Forgotten Realms games, you know, used to play a lot of those, and, you know, The Bard's Tale when it first came out was kind of like revolutionary for me, you know, on the Amiga. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've always been a fan, and I'm definitely, I'm a huge fan of fantasy sci fi books as well. I, I, my, I've got like four bookshelves in my bedroom, uh, which my wife hates, full of all my books. She gets no bookshelf space at all, and I've just got a, 700 fantasy books on my shelf. So, um, I always wanted to, I don't know, I, I, sometimes I think I was born in the wrong era, like I, you know, I, I wish I was born forever ago, back in those days. I mean, sure, that I'm not talking about dragons or sorcery, but if you know what I mean, um, I think I'm misplaced in time. So I've always wanted to build a game that had strong fantasy influences, but it's always been hard finding the right time to do it. Um, you know, Fight the Dragon ended up being perfect timing for me as a game developer, because I'd I had enough um, financial backing behind me to do it, and I had enough experience. And um, you know, we were solidified on Steam because we would, you know, Fire the Dragons our third game on Steam, so we had that as a, a jumping platform. And we've got a quite a good uh, history track record with Apple, although Fire the Dragons not available on mobile. Um, so it just became the right time to to kind of do it. You know, I play a lot of Diablo. Um, an interesting decision we made with Fight the Dragon. One of the reasons I wanted to build it now was, you know, I've got two young kids. so My daughter's six, and my son's three and a half, and I have no time to play Diablo anymore. I mean, it takes an hour, an hour and a half to get to the next checkpoint to be able to save your game, and or save your progress. And notoriously, I'll be ten minutes into, you know, a section, a chapter, and my wife will call out to me saying she needs some help. You know, kids are screaming, fighting, or I need to bath them, or feed them, or put them to bed and so i'm like a really time poor game developer and game player so one of the focuses with fire the dragon was it was all about short form adventuring we wanted people to be able to load up an adventure play for anywhere between five and 15 minutes and get rewarded for it and be able to either you know load up another adventure if they have time or walk away and have earned some progress and feel like they achieved something and that was a very strong focus inside the game um, which I think has been one of the, the, the positive outcomes. You know, the fact that you can have a world map with 5,000, 10,000 adventures on it if you want, but you're not stuck having to play an hour or two hours at a time.
1: Now, I haven't played your previous 21 games, unfortunately. I apologize. <laughs> uh, but looking at YouTube videos of Cube Men, it I can see a, sort of a family resemblance there. Does Fight the Dragon use some of the same code or some of the same engine as Cubemen?
0: It, it doesn't. And it's all brand-new code base and, and brand-new editor and everything else. Uh, we, not, I'm not a, a big believer in code reuse. I know shock horror. All the developers out there going to scream at me. But, um, yeah, as you do things, you always find better ways and, and faster ways and more efficient ways of coding as you keep doing the same type of tasks again and again. But originally, Fire the Dragon was going to be a Cubeman RPG. Um, it was going to – we were going to try to, you know – Leverage the branding of Kuben, but I think about two or three months into development, we decided that we wanted to break away from the branding instead and uh, and try to come up with a, a new brand and a, a new look and feel. But we you know, aesthetically, there is you know our characters they don't look cubey, but we definitely have gone for a stylized, low polygon look for all our characters in the game, and we've definitely got the the you know the cube based sculpting inside the editor um it's just the style we're comfortable with and we you know we were a two-man team on development of the whole game plus a, a part-time artist and so it's not like we had you know a team of five or six artists who could do photorealistic work you know we had to work within our our means so some of the decisions were were based on what we thought we could achieve and the rest was what we thought we were comfortable with most people like the the aesthetic of, of the game um you know there are bits in the game that people look at and go, oh, definitely cube, you know, cube inspired But then some people think we're Minecraft-inspired and some people think we're Lego-inspired. So, And some people don't like our style at all. We've had quite a few people tell us that, you know, our, our art looks worse than PlayStation 1 uh, art. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, your game isn't for those people.
0: Okay. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, we'd like our game to be for everyone, but I, I learned early on that you can't please everyone, so... There's no point trying. Just as long as you can please yourself as a developer, that's the most important thing.
1: You mentioned you have a good relationship with Apple, but beyond just the computer and mobile platforms, you also released Cubeman 2 for the Wii U this past September. Yes. Was that a positive enough experience that you would consider releasing other console games?
0: It was an interesting experience. I mean, I've worked on console before externally from my own stuff, but this is the first time I've I've released one of my own titles on, on console. The so Wii U was an interesting choice for us. We, Cubeman was a perfect fit for the Wii U because we didn't have to convert the game to run off a controller. We could use the, um, the gamepad and use the touch controls as well as, and we could augment the game rather than replacing the control scheme. And that was a positive for us. And Nintendo were really open to allowing us to do the cross platform content and the cross platform multiplayer, which was a first for a Nintendo platform. I think, yeah, Cubeman. Two on the wii u was the first game ever to do both cross-platform multiplayer and cross-platform user-generated content so that was what got us over the line and, and made us decide to do it financially you know obviously the wii use the the least selling console out of the the current gen now uh, and definitely out of the previous gen so you know we were definitely not retiring off the experience but um it was definitely a positive outlook now in terms of Fight the Dragon, our plan, the game was built from the start to be completely console-friendly. So, Fight the Dragon is currently being developed for console. Uh, I'm not quite in a position to talk about how that's going to pan out yet, but it's definitely an active de- development right now for console.
2: That's exciting. I had a question. We were talking about you know, the origin of the title of um, Fight the Dragon, but where does the title of your company, Three Sprockets, where does that come from?
0: Ah, uh, I get asked that a lot actually, and you know what honestly it's 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 a nothing name it was a the actual company was set up for something else, it wasn't even set up for game development ha, huh. um, but I had a previous game company called Sector Three, which I sold to another game company in, in Melbourne uh in two thousand nine and after my contract with them ended, I was kind of a free agent, and I didn't know what to do with myself and so I thought, well, let's start again so i start another indie studio and I, I've happened to have that company sitting there doing nothing. So I mean that that's it. That's just exciting as it is. It doesn't mean anything. There's uh there's two of us in the company, so that's it's not two Sprockets. And originally people used to tell me it was because it was my wife and my daughter and I, but now I've got a son as well. So there's you know, I could change the name to four sprockets, but it's just got no I meaning.
2: That's a lot um, of paperwork. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's it's a it's a throwaway name.
2: Um, that's cool though. I mean that's a fun origin story.
0: Yeah. My original company, Sector Three, that was, uh, and again, there's the three in both companies, and it, it, there's no correlation to that. Um, but when when I did that Sector Three name, I wanted something that was kind of like you know an Area 51 or something. I wanted this obscure, you know, sounding like secret sounding type name. But um, yeah, I don't know where the sprockets came from. Mm-hmm. It was just something.
1: Now here's another question about your geography and your history. You mentioned that you sold your previous company to a, another institution in the area, and you're in Melbourne, Australia. And also in Melbourne, Australia is Adrian Moore of Love Shack, who created Framed, which was featured on a previous episode of Indie Cider. And I've interviewed other developers from around the world, including two in Poland and one just recently in France. So that's. A, a large portion of the IndieCider podcast that has gone beyond the the bounds of the United States. So I'm wondering, are Americans losing the indie arms
0: race? <laughs> Is there an indie arms race? Wow. Okay. Um, that's interesting. I, I think there's definitely a AAA arms race, I think still. I mean, obviously, you've got so much invested in the AAA space, one of these big studios. But the, this, there's a solidarity in the indie scene that's global, that's... Um, but it, it transcends the geography, I think. So I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't. Maybe New Indies have have a, a different outlook, but most of the uh, I'll call us the old guard. You know, I mean, obviously there are Indies that have been around longer than I have, but I've been around for quite a while. The us old guard, we we tend to think that we all work together. We want to share and we want to help each other, inspire each other to succeed. Um, it's hard to really say that any of us are in competition with each other because the the global market, like marketplace, is is massive. I mean, there are no matter how many developers there are, there are still way more players than there are games out there. Although obviously the the number of games being released daily now is massive compared to what it was two years ago, but the player base is also massive. So it's hard to you know unless you know Joe Blow who lives next to me is is making a an RPG with a construction kit that's similar to mine. There's no competition between us all so we tend to like all work together and and you know if you go to a gdc or a, a, a games camp to somewhere else you can you see or a pax even where we're all in it together like there's definitely no arms race uh that said i mean there are a lot of emerging spaces in the indie scene you know the, the european market is definitely you know there's a lot of really fantastic indies that have gone unknown or unheard of for a long time that are starting to emerge and Australia is definitely on the, on the world stage in terms of some, some really successful independent studios or individual people as well. I don't know. Maybe the, uh, a lot of the, the US based media outlet are more interested in seeing what's happening outside of the US. I, I, I don't know. There seems to be some, you know, for instance, the hipster whale guys, Matt and Andy, I mean, with Crossy Road. I mean, that's a, like a, it's becoming a, an absolute cult phenomenon now. I mean, that's, I can't think of the last company that did something like that that was like a one or two man indie team. So, but I don't think there's anything in our water, for instance, that's making us better developers. Maybe a be, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah,
1: well. <laughs> well. I think it's great wherever these games are coming from because I have another podcast all about equality and diversity and how games can be used to tell different kinds of stories that you don't get if you're only getting games made by a specific demographic. And so it's it's wonderful to see games coming from all the corners of
0: the earth. It's a, well, obviously making games is is easier now in terms of the tools available to us. Um obviously getting getting seen and discovered is is Harder than it's ever been because of the number of games and, um, and the, you know, people vying for, you know, let's play space or, or press space. But in terms of people being able to express their, you know, their creativity, whether it's development or artistically through games, it's never been easier. And it's, you know, as, as a world, we're all connected, you know, much closer than we've ever been due to the internet and social media. So I think. It's 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 a win for everyone, and the um, the range of you know diverse games like styles and genres out there is, is also increasing. You know, from not just you know it used to be about either serious games or, or playful games, and now you know people are telling you know really strong stories, you know, uh, or you know games about life or games about tragedy. It, it's um it's it's really inspiring. Um, obviously. I don't know, we, uh, I, I seem to, you know, hover towards, you know, strategy slash or or creativity-based games where people can actually build, you know, their own content and express themselves inside our game. But uh, I definitely give kudos to all the developers out there that are trying to take on something more serious. Definitely inspiring.
2: We are so lucky the way the state of the industry at this point. And I always like to think about, you know, if I could go back in time and tell my young self, like, what it was going to be like, you know, back then just being sort of like a geeky little kid playing games and it wasn't popular, you know, I would have been so excited. You know, you could not imagine
0: where things were going to go at this point. I was going to say, like, even today, I can't even imagine where things could go in another five years, let alone the next 12 months.
2: I know, it's the same. So, like, in that vein, what's next for you guys? I mean,
0: yeah, that's a really good question. You know, <laughs> right. we've got, you know, Cube Man 3, Fight the Dragon 2. No, neither of those. Um, I mean, we're still actively working on Fight the Dragon, mm-hmm. and we're we're currently prototyping some other game ideas. It's, uh, I don't, we don't know, to be honest with you. And it's been a question I've been asking myself for a little while. We tend to kind of fall into what's next and realize this is what's next after we subconsciously made that decision. We're, we're always prototyping, discussing ideas. You, you can't not. I mean, you know, it, it's as a developer, one of our biggest, well, biggest problems for an indie is you've always got too many ideas and not enough time to to work on them or try them out. So, the ultimate question though is, what ideas are worth doing? What ideas are you know, which ones have a chance to be both commercially successful and can fulfill you know, actually pan out and and be enjoyable to make and enjoyable to play. I'm a strong believer in the whole it's okay to be making games to make money um, at the end of the day you know there are, there's this camp of people that think that it's it's only about a creative outlet and and making money is secondary and, and it is secondary I mean if you do what you love, generally things fall into place quite well but at the end of the day, you know I need to feed my kids I need to pay my mortgage. You know, I've chosen games as a career and it has to be financially viable for me. Otherwise, I can't do what I want to do. So that, that commercial element is always there. It's always hanging over my head. And obviously, uh, you know, Don't Like Fight the Dragon is the biggest game we've ever made. You know, it was 18 months in, de- in development before we launched and it's probably got another six months worth of ongoing active development time on it. I mean, that's a huge financial commitment, huge. So, you know, we need to make sure that we can actually make money back off, off the titles we make. Yeah, that's fair.
1: Well, it sounds like you're on the right path. This game seems to be doing pretty well, and I hope it continues to do so. Thank you. Thank you. And it's been great having the opportunity to chat with you and play your game and learn more about it. We already mentioned that the game is available on fightthedragon.com. Where else can our listeners find you and your company online?
0: Uh, We've got threesprockets.com, but we really don't spend a lot of time on there right now. And at Threesprockets on Twitter. um, We've got a Facebook page, Threesprockets slash fish rockets and slash fight the dragon. But um we, we right now we tend to spend most of our time either on Twitter or on the Steam community forums because that's where our you know our biggest player base is. As we start moving to other platforms, we'll need we to start working out where we're going to get our community to to congregate. Um, we probably shouldn't have kept everyone on Steam for so long, but it's it's just a convenient place for us. But definitely in Twitter and, and Facebook we're around and we're always happy to chat. Um, I, I tell people in the Steam community I'm always happy to accept friend requests and if I can chat I'll chat with people, you know, if I'm busy I'll let them know, I'm busy
1: Wonderful, well if your user generated content is any indication you have a great community already
0: Thank you Thank you, we do, we have a pretty awesome community The game wouldn't be where it is today without them so we're, we're definitely appreciative
1: Well thank you for your game and thank you again for your time Sion It's been a pleasure Thanks guys
2: pleasure. Thank you.
0: Awesome, see ya
2: This has been IndieCider, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net.
1: I I think I hung up on him. I don't know. Yeah, he's gone now. Oh, he is? Yes. Okay.